want to make a quick apology at the beginning of this sermon for uh, the difficult audio experience at, at various points for the first 30 minutes or so. We left the pulpit microphone on but did not turn on the lapel mic, and so the audio fades in and out as I wander uh, in and out of the range of the pulpit microphone. And then we finally realized what was going on and got the lapel mic on for the rest of it. So that's what's going on there. My apologies, and we'll aim to not let it happen again. Uh, this morning, you can have your Bibles handy. I don't have a particular passage for you to turn to today. Um, you can perhaps turn, if you'd like, to Genesis 16, where we found, found ourselves last week, uh, right at the end of Genesis 16, for that is indeed uh, what we are still um, using as the basis for uh, the question that we asked this morning, uh, who is the angel of the Lord? Last time we were together, we considered the account of Hagar running from her mistress, Sarai. Hagar was pregnant with her child, with Abram. She runs away and is resting by a well in the wilderness on her way to Shur. And we talked through that, where that might be, uh, why she was going there, all of those things. And it was there that the Bible introduced to us a new character. And that character is called the angel of the Lord. Now, we didn't have last time to speak directly to it. Uh, I... um, Preached a long message last week. Uh, didn't have, uh, didn't, didn't want to add any more to that particular message, but I told you that we'd come back to it because we can't overlook it. And we can't overlook it because this is the first instance of the angel of the Lord. If you were reading your Bible from cover to cover for the first time and you hit Genesis 16, you would have read about Adam and about Eve and about Cain and Abel and Cain's posterity unto Lamech and Seth's posterity unto Noah and then the son's Uh, of God in Noah's day, and then the sons, uh, uh, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the curse of Canaan, and all the way to Abram and to Sarai, and we've considered all of these characters and what the Lord has been doing throughout, and we've seen this uniqueness uh, of of the Lord in a few different characters as as he sought to walk with Adam in the cool of the day, and then uh, as he took Enoch, and as uh, he declared Noah righteous, and and then as he speaks to Abram, uh, as the scriptures would say, as a friend speaks to a friend. But now we have a new character that's introduced to the narrative. And this new character is called the angel of the Lord. And we have seen nothing quite like this before in the narrative. We've we've seen the Lord in this capacity, but we've not seen anything quite like what we see here in his interactions with Hagar. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So recall last time in Genesis chapter 6, verse 16, excuse me, verse 7. And the angel of the Lord found her, that would be Hagar, by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And the first thing we need to talk about is this idea of an angel itself. The Hebrew word here is the word malak. The Hebrew and Greek words that we often see translated angel in the scriptures is actually simply the word for messenger. There's nothing inherent into this word that demands that it's speaking of something spiritual or of something supernatural necessarily. In fact, all throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see the word used not necessarily to speak of spiritual messengers, but many times to speak of human messengers. As a matter of fact, we even have a book of our Bible named Malachi. And that word Malachi is a Hebrew word. The I at the end of the Hebrew word is, a pre, is, is the... Um, Suffix that means me or my. Malachi literally means in the Hebrew, the messenger of me or my 
messenger. And so we, we see this man Malachi being one of these messengers, right? Uh, a messenger of the Lord. Now, the first time that we see this word translated anything other than angel in our Bibles is not until Genesis chapter 32, verse 3. And in Genesis 32, verse 3, we see Jacob returning to the land of of promise after having spent those 20 years up with his mother's brethren in that area of Haran. And the Bible says that Jacob sent messengers to his brother Esau. And that word messengers is this same word that we find here, malak. To this end, it's not always uh, necessarily clear. It is, in fact, an interpretive decision whether or not any translation, King James included, determines this messenger, whatever messenger it might be, to be a human emissary of God or a spiritual emissary, an angelic emissary of God. And what we have characteristically done in Christian circles is to look at the context to determine whether or not the things which the messenger does reflect the characteristics of a human being or whether they reflect the characteristics of a spiritual being. Now, we certainly know that they both exist within the context of Scripture. We, we see certain times where it's quite obvious, such as with Malachi, uh, where these messengers are very human, and they are uh, men who have been commissioned by God with a message, and so they are his messengers, and there is that word. But then there are other times where these things are very clearly not human, Uh, be that because of uh, the way that they look or the way that they act, because they are appearing uh, and disappearing, because they're granting visions, uh, because uh, they have four faces, because they have wings, all sorts of things that would help us understand that they are certainly not human in origin, though they are used the same word. To this end, then, we find that the Old Testament uses this Hebrew word, malach, 212 times. 110 times our King James Bibles translate it angel or angels. 102 times our King James Bibles translate it either messenger or ambassador, meaning that there is quite an even split between them as it relates to the King James's choice uh, of the word and the usage of the word. Most of these are relatively clear, while a few might be controversial as to whether or not the messenger is human or angelic. The debate as to whether this word, uh, the, the word angel is actually speaking of a angelic messenger or, or excuse me, the word, the, the, the Hebrew or the Greek word is, is speaking of an angelic messenger or a human messenger is, is perhaps a little bit more valid. The debate is more valid in the New Testament as we see various times in the New Testament where it truly could go either way, whether these messengers are angelic or whether they are human. That being said, There is a subset of this word, malak, which is perhaps less debatable in the Old Testament. And that's the subset of uh, of the word that we find here in Genesis 16, verse 7, through this phrase, the angel of the Lord. It's translated throughout the Old Testament, angel of the Lord. And here I remind you of the King James Version's traditional consistency as it relates to their labels. When you see the name of God in all caps in your King James Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the name behind it is that name Jehovah, what modern scholars call Yahweh. The history over why it was switched from Jehovah to Yahweh uh, and which is correct and what is the difference 
is a discussion for another day. But when there is a name of God in all caps in our Bibles, what you're looking at is the name, the name behind it is in our King James Bibles, the name Jehovah. Usually, the word that you'll see in all caps is Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. However, there are some places where the name Jehovah is paired with the Hebrew word for Lord, which is the word Adon or Adonai, my Lord. And so when that happens, they don't say Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, Lord, capital O, capital L, capital O, O, capital R, capital D. It's not easy to say. They don't say Lord, Lord, right? Instead, they say Lord God. And then God is what is in all caps, capital G, capital O, capital D. And that's Adonai, Jehovah, the capital letters now still being reflective of the fact that the name behind it is Jehovah, but switching from Lord to God because the other word that's paired with it is the word itself, Adon or Lord. And we've seen that actually come up a couple of times in Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 15, verse 2, the Bible says, And Abraham said, Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus? So the title of Lord, coming before the name Jehovah, expresses that Jehovah is in fact the one in authority, the Lord of Abram. And this is in contrast to most times where we see Lord God, where the phrase is not Adonai Jehovah, but rather Jehovah Elohim. Hence, the Lord is in all caps, and God is in capital G, lowercase od. We see this going back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These, excuse me, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord, notice capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, God, capital G, lowercase od, made the earth and the heavens. In this case, the Lord represents the name Jehovah and is paired with the Hebrew word Elohim, which is the plural for the word in Hebrew, God. The word is plural. Uh, there's all manner of speculation as to why that is, but what we understand is it's not uncommon for those who are of magisterial greatness to have referred to themselves in ancient history by a plural reference. Uh, so the kings would get up and say, we declare this and we declare that. Well, it's just the king declaring it, but he gives a collective we to elevate his majesty that he is speaking for his people and for his realm and for everything else. We call that the majestic plural in theological circles. So in Genesis chapter 16, verse 7, we see a messenger show up to Hagar that is called the messenger or the angel of the Lord. And at this point, we have no reason to assume anything one way or the other about who this messenger is. But it will not take long for us to see that this messenger is somewhat unique. And perhaps you caught it when we studied through the passage last time. I already gave away the plot, right? I already told you who I think this is. Um, but perhaps you caught why. The angel of the Lord finds Hagar. And verse 9 in verse 9, he instructs her to return and to submit herself to her mistress. Things get very interesting, however, when we get to Genesis 16, verse 10, where the Bible says this, And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. Now, this is interesting. The messenger of the Lord tells Hagar that he would multiply her seed exceedingly. Now, this is the exact same language, and we talked about this last time. This is the same language that is used when the Lord appeared to Abram and told Abram that he would make him a great nation. And it's used again. 
And this messenger says he would do this thing for Hagar. And the question that we ask is this. Would anyone other than Jehovah make such a promise invoking himself? Certainly a prophet could command Hagar to name the child Ishmael. Certainly a prophet could tell Hagar of the promises of her son. But no prophet would say that he would multiply Hagar's seed. And to this you might say, well, yes, pastor, but many prophets spoke in the first person as it related to the way that they would relay the commands of the Lord. There are plenty of prophets that would get up and say, thus saith the Lord. And then they would say, I have taken you from small to great, and now I will judge you. We see the Lord speak through his prophets all the time. So why wouldn't this just be perhaps a messenger, a prophet of the Lord who comes to Hagar and who says, thus saith the Lord, and then gives the message of the Lord. I will multiply your seed exceedingly. Well, that, that's reasonable. That's possible, except that what, what did I say then that we do not read in the text? There is no thus saith the Lord. The messenger simply comes up and says, I'm going to do this thing for you. There is no invocation of the Lord's authority. And if this were a messenger of the Lord in the, in, in the case of a prophet, now we don't have the Old Testament law yet. We don't have uh, all of the things that the Old Testament law says about when a prophet comes in my name, he will say these things. And we don't have all of that formalized invocation yet. But what we do not see here is any indication that this man is speaking for the Lord as one who is outside of the Lord, what we see is that this one comes who is called the messenger or the angel of the Lord, and he says to Hagar, I will do these things for you. Not only do we recognize this, but Hagar recognizes this as well. So we read in verse 13, she called the name of the Lord that spake uh, uh, unto her, thou God seest me. For she said, have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Hagar says, of the Lord that spake to her, she named him, thou God seest me. And then she asks this question, have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Have I looked upon the one that looks upon me? Is that what just happened here, she says? Did I just look upon the one that looks upon me? And we're going to see that this is somewhat characteristic of those who interact with this one that is called the angel of the Lord, that they interact with the angel of the Lord, and then once the angel of the Lord has fully fleshed out his message, his purpose, and, and, and in many cases his identity, they say, wait a minute, did I just interact with God himself? And this lends us to the conclusion that it seems almost natural to believe that this angel of the Lord was, in fact, God himself. And to be quite honest, with what we have learned in the Bible so far, far this would not necessarily uh, confuse us or concern us. Because to this point in the Bible, we have not been introduced to the ideas that we see later on, that no man has seen God at any time, that no man can see the face of God and live. But we have been introduced, have we not, to the very personal nature of God, a God who stood in the presence of men. Recall way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we read this. This is Adam and Eve, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. So the Bible says that the Lord God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. This gives us a distinct understanding that God 
walked among men. That there was a time where God walked among men. So that if we were reading our Bibles cover to cover, and we had not yet gotten to um, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, having no other understanding of God than what we have been introduced to to this point in the narrative, we would not be confused that God is now once again reaching out and representing himself to mankind. However, most of us have not only read the first 16 chapters of Genesis in our Bibles. I hope you've not. We'll talk about that more uh, after the service. And if you've read a little bit more than that in your Bibles, what you know is that when you get to Exodus and when you get to Joshua and when you get to Judges, uh, there are these exclamations that no man can see God and live, that no man has seen God at any time. We see that in the New Testament as well. No man has seen God at any time, we read in John chapter 1. We know that when Moses asked the Lord in Exodus chapter 33, Lord, show me thy glory, the Lord's response in Exodus 33 verse 20 was, and he said, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. So the Lord ends up passing by Moses, but not allowing Moses to see his face. And there are, of course, various interpretations of why that might be. But within the scope of our theological framework, this has led many to believe that, well, what the word of God says, that no man has seen God. If no man has seen God, then how is it that Hagar saw God? And that's the question that we ask. And the answer that we give to that quite characteristically is this, that while the Father in heaven is clothed in majesty and in light so that none can see him and live, so that his glory is excessive beyond that which even the human mind can comprehend or, or receive, yet God has always designated a means by which for him to personally interact with the people of this world. And if I were to ask you, from your New Testament perspective, whom has God always designated to interact with those of this world, what would you tell me? You would tell me Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus was born. We're coming into the season where we learn when Jesus was born. Jesus is the name of a human that was born some 2,000 years ago. But the Bible says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then in John 1 verse 14, the Bible says, and the Word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What this tells us, and what Jesus himself says, before Abraham was, I am, is that Jesus, the, 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 the person of God, existed well before the man. He was not a man until he was born 2,000 years ago, but he has always existed as the divine second person of the Godhead. He has always been the Son, in contrast to the Father and the Holy Spirit. And if we see that God has chosen that his son be that mediator between God and man, if we see that God has chosen that his son would be the one to represent the father to the world, so that Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen my father, so that Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the express image of God's person, then should it surprise us 
then would it, would it be anything other than absolutely consistent for us to assess that when God sends the angel of the Lord and who, those who interact with him walk away saying, I just interacted with God himself, who else would it be but the divine second person of the Godhead? In, in the Godhead, the one that we call the Son of God. And so this is what we believe, that even before... Jesus took on flesh and was given that name. He was that liaison between the Father and humanity. So even in the Old Testament, where Jesus had not yet been born, where the second person of the Trinity yet still very much exists, going all the way back to creation, where the Word made the world, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, telling us that by him, that's by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. This is Jesus Christ. He is the creator God. Though he had not yet taken on flesh, Yet we might believe that he was still very active, interacting between God and man, appearing as the angel of the Lord. And of course, the New Testament tells us various other aspects of this. The angel of the Lord did not always appear as a man. We recognize that it was the Lord that spoke through the burning bush to Moses. We recognize that it was the Lord that was in the pillar of cloud and pillar and fire as they wandered in the in the wilderness. We understand that the Lord was in the rock that brought forth the water by which the nation of Israel was, was um, provided for. And so we see the Lord in all of these manifestations. Here we see him as the angel of the Lord. So where that leaves us then is this. In this first appearance of a man who will make numerous appearances throughout the Old Testament called the messenger of the Lord, identified in our King James Bible as the angel of the Lord, it is seen that this messenger connects himself directly with the power of God so that we can understand first that this is a spiritual messenger, not a human messenger. And we can rightly then call him an angel. And then second, that in this case, the spiritual messenger is not just a representative of God, but in this case is in fact God. And that he claims the power to multiply Hagar's seed. And Hagar claims herself that this was in fact the Lord, that she has seen the one who has seen her. So that as we walk through the scriptures and we come to this name, the angel of the Lord, we need to explore several things. First, is this truly an angelic messenger or is this a human messenger? If it's human, we would not call him an angel, right? We'd call him a prophet. If he's angelic, well, then the next question is, is this a created angelic being, as we talked about, believing that the Lord created the angels on that day one when he said, let there be light, and there was light? Or is this, in fact, God himself? And throughout the scriptures, you will find several indicators of what it is that you're looking at. Naturally, our King James Bibles do a generally good job of distinguishing between the human and the angelic. In the Old Testament, I've not come across examples where the Bible uses angel uh, reflecting a spiritual messenger where I would believe that it maybe should have used the word messenger and left it open for the possibility of a human messenger. In the New Testament, however, as I said before, there are significantly more relevant questions surrounding the use of the idea of angel. We think of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 where we see the, the, the um, letters to the seven angels of the seven churches in the book of the Revelation. 
And that word angel is that word for messenger. It's a word that is not only used of angelic messengers. It is a word that is used of human messengers as well. And the question that we ask is, well, is that really written to angelic beings, which there's plenty of good reasons why that doesn't necessarily make sense, or is it written to an earthly messenger of some sort? There's also the question in Hebrews chapter 13, verse, uh, verse 2, where the Bible uh, says that, that we may um, uh, show hospitality to or entertain angels unawares. And again, that word being just as valid as uh, to be used as a uh, spiritual being, as a human being, uh, the question becomes, are we talking about spiritual messengers or are we talking about human messengers when it speaks of that idea of angels unawares? And so these are more difficult questions as it relates to the term angel. But in the Old Testament, when you see the angel of the Lord, you can be pretty confident that you're talking about a heavenly messenger, a spiritual being. That does not mean that every time we see the phrase angel of the Lord, it explicitly means we're talking about God himself. Well, pastor then, how can I know when I'm reading through the text whether or not this is God himself or whether or not this is one of his angels, one of the created beings that we call angels that does the bidding of the Lord. And that's what we're going to spend a bit more of our time together talking about. What are the evidences, as we look into the scriptures, that the angel of the Lord is in fact God himself who is speaking? And I'm going to give you three of those evidences uh, with the remainder of our time today before we, before we close things out that will help you be able to discern whether or not it's the Lord or it's one of his messengers that's being spoken about. So the evidence number one, evidences of interaction with Jehovah. The first one is that he calls himself Lord, or the Bible calls him Lord. We're coming uh, very soon to Genesis chapter 18. And in Genesis chapter 18, Abram is eating with three angels. And one of those angels is the spokesman and, and is unique from the other two. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, And the Lord appeared unto him, that would be Abraham, in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. So in Genesis 18, we're going to witness Abraham interact with these three men, and the narrative begins by saying that the Lord appeared to Abraham as he sat in the plains. And it will go on to describe this interaction where God promises Sarah a son once again. Now after this, as the men are leaving, this man talks to the other two angels, and he says, should we tell Abraham what we're about to do? And Abraham then interacts with this, this angel as it relates to Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice what we read in verses 20, and then I'll skip to 22. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous. And then in 22, and the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. So we see here a man who Abraham is interacting with. As a matter of fact, they, they fellowship together, they ate together, and yet when it is time for that man to speak, he's called the Lord. And when Abraham stands before him to, to, to uh, question or challenge him, he says he stood before the Lord himself. And so you're going to come across various times where you see a man interacting, and that man is called the Lord. If he's called the Lord, he's probably the Lord. Second, the receptor acknowledges him to be Jehovah. We experience several times within the course of interactions where the person that's interacting with this angel acknowledges him to be the Lord, oftentimes after the fact. This is what we saw with Hagar. 
when she says, did I just see the one who sees me? Remember, the name Jehovah is not a name which is used for uh, anything else in the scripture. If a person says they saw the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, there is not any ambiguity as to what they're saying. If they had used the word Elohim, well, the word Elohim, which means God, can speak of various gods throughout the Bible. There are many different men and spiritual beings which are labeled as Elohim. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of debate, which I talked about earlier on in the Genesis series, around this idea of Elohim and many people believing that this speaks to a divine council, right? A multitude of beings which form a divine council around the Lord. And I spoke uh, as to why I, I don't believe that that is the case. Uh, but it all comes back to this idea of Elohim being used for many different things other than just our Lord and Jehovah God. And then Adonai is the same way. Adonai is the Hebrew word for my Lord. And it can speak of various lords. It can speak of human lords. It can speak of idols. It can speak of Jehovah. So that those are ambiguous words that would not give us any sort of clarity as it relates to who we're interacting with. But the name Jehovah was and is a name that is exclusive to the God of the Bible who created the world and walked with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and connected directly to that one who is Jesus of Nazareth. And there are numerous times where we don't actually know who it is that is standing before a person, who it is that's interacting with them until that person himself tells us. We see this in Jacob's day. Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 to 30. The Bible says, And when Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled with, uh, and Jacob was left alone, excuse me. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. So at this point, Jacob is wrestling with some guy, right? And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint, and he wrestled with him. So Jacob is now, his, his hip is out of joint. And he said, let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. Well, this is strange. Why does Jacob want a blessing from this man? And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. So here is a man who... Blesses Jacob, changes his name, says that he has power with God, and then is called God. Notice it is not the, the name Jehovah here. It is the name Elohim. And yet all of these things are invoked for us to see here that he acknowledges that he saw God face to face. And what he marveled at is that he saw God face to face and his life was preserved. He did not see the Father. He saw the Son. One more that we find here the final evidence of interaction with Jehovah and that we find that he accepts or he demands worship. Now it is perhaps the most clear and common indication that the angel of the Lord is the Lord himself that he accepts or he demands worship. Throughout the Bible we find that angels reject worship. The clearest example of this is Revelation chapter 19 verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. 
And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou doest it not, I am thy fellow servant. And of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we find here an angel that appears to John and tells John these things. And as he's telling John these things, John feels compelled to worship. So he falls down at the feet of this angel to worship him. And the angel strictly refuses to accept that worship. He says, I am a servant just as you are a servant. Worship God. Angels are spirit beings, but they are not divine they are fellow creations. They are fellow servants like as we. They are no more worthy of worship than a prophet or a pastor or a king. And yet oftentimes in interactions with the angel of the Lord, what we find is this. The angel of the Lord either accepts worship or he demands worship. The examples of these are manyfold. I told you already that when Moses approached the burning bush, that was the angel of the Lord. Why would you think that, Pastor? Well, because when Moses approached, do you remember the first thing that that flame of fire, the voice that came out of that flame of fire, told Moses to do? To take off his shoes. Because he stands on holy ground. If he's on holy ground, then there's a presence there that has made it holy. Thus, he must take off his shoes. And so we see here that this one, this one who is speaking out of this burning bush that is not being consumed, we say if, he is speak, if, if, if Moses is standing as he speaks to this, this, this bush on holy ground, then what we are seeing there is a manifestation of God himself. The same request is made of Joshua in Joshua chapter 5. When Joshua stands before the captain of the Lord's hosts, He's the captain of the Lord's hosts. How is it that we believe that he is the angel of the Lord? Well, because he tells Joshua, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. Created angels did not demand that of those. Gabriel, we never read of Gabriel demanding that. We do read of the Lord demanding that. An angel himself, an angelic being, would not himself make that ground holy, but the Lord himself certainly would. In the days of Gideon, we find the angel of the Lord appear and instruct Gideon regarding his part in the Lord's deliverance in Judges chapter 6. Following their interaction, Gideon made a meal for this messenger of the Lord. And this angel instructs Gideon to take the flesh and the bread and to lay them upon a rock and to pour the broth on top of them. And the Bible says that after Gideon had done that, the, the, this angel reaches out his staff and he touches that pile of food and the fire came up from the rock and consumed that pile of food and then the angel disappeared. What we find there is that this angel instructed Gideon to make an altar and then to sacrifice on that altar. And this angel touched that altar, allowing fire to come up from that altar, bringing about worship and then accepting this worship. If this angel accepts worship, then we presume that this angel is, in fact, the Lord himself. And Gideon knew this, too, because he feared for his life. He was afraid when he interacted and he saw that that happened because he said, I've seen the Lord. And there's at least one account that contains all of these features. And I'd like to show you that account to add this clarity, to understand this. So that as you read the Old Testament, you can have a general understanding of when it is that we see the Lord himself interacting with his people. And that account is of Samson's parents in Judges chapter 13. 
I'm going to read a fairly good chunk of scripture here, but I'll skip a few verses uh, for the sake of time. The Bible says this. There was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O my Lord, let the man of God which thou didst send come again unto us and teach us what we shall do unto the child that shall be born. And God hearkened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came again unto the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. And the woman made haste and ran and showed her husband and said unto him, Behold, the man hath appeared unto me that came to me the other day. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said unto him, Art thou the man that spakest unto the woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now let thy words come to pass. How shall we order the child? And how shall we do unto him? And the angel of the Lord said unto Manoah, Of all that I said unto the woman, let her beware. She may not eat of anything that cometh of the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. All that I command her, let her observe. And Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, I pray thee, let us detain thee until we shall have made ready a kid for thee. And the angel of the Lord said unto Manoah, Though thou detain me, I will not eat of thy bread. And if thou wilt offer a burnt offering, thou must offer it unto the Lord. For Manoah knew not that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, What is thy name? That when thy sayings come to pass, we may do thee honor. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is a secret? A consistency with what we see in Jacob's day where he would not give his name. So Manoah took a, a kid with a meat offering and offered it upon a rock unto the Lord. And the angel did wondrously. And Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came to pass when the flame went up toward heaven from off the altar that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And Manoah and his wife looked on it and fell on their faces to the ground. But the angel of the Lord did no more appear unto Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said unto his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. So notice what we see here. Manoah and his wife think that this is simply a man of God of some sort, a prophet of some sort, hoping that this prophet would come back, that they could ask more questions when he promises that there would be this great uh, judge that would, be, that would arise in Israel. The text tells us, however, that he is the angel of the Lord. It begins by saying he's the angel of God, and then it quickly shifts to calling him the angel of the Lord. And Manoah asks this man if he may detain this angel and that they would eat bread together, very, again, similar to, to uh, the, the days of Gideon. And this angel refuses, however, says that you can make an offering and not unto me, but unto the Lord. It must be to the Lord. Is the, well, he doesn't say not unto me. He says it must be to the Lord by implication because Manoah does not yet know who he is. And then the text makes clear, Manoah not knowing at this point that this was the angel of the Lord, he takes the kid and he offers it upon a rock, very similar to Gideon, except in this case it, it appears he, he lit the fire himself. And as he lights this offering, the Bible says that the angel does wondrously and he ascends in the flame of the altar into heaven, indicating again that he is participating in and accepting this as a form of worship. And Manoah understands this to the point where he is fearful that they would die because they have seen the Lord. And so all of these elements were present to assure us in this instance that the angel of the Lord, which Manoah and his wife saw, was in fact Jehovah himself. 
And as we see interactions between man and the angel, and, and this angel in the book of Genesis, based upon this introduction, we can assume that the angel is, as a general rule, Jehovah, unless the text indicates otherwise. You say, well, pastor, that's very interesting, but why? Why, 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 why is that worthy of our time this morning? What do we do with it? Well, first, I hope it clarifies your study, of course. I hope that it adds clarity where there might otherwise be confusion. I hope that it answers questions for you and so empowers you to answer the question for others. But what I'd really like us to think about this morning is this idea of the angel of the Lord eating with and walking with and otherwise interacting with men. And what we remember today is that it has always been God's desire for man to know him. And that God has always been a personal God. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, where God says that we don't have to go to the farthest reaches of the world. We don't have to climb to the highest peaks to find him. But the word is very nigh unto us. It's in our mouths. It's in our hearts. God is a personal God and he has always desired his people to know him. And this is a wonderful message for us to initiate this Christmas season here as we step into December of 2023. Because we are reminded that one of the things that we so pointedly celebrate within this time of year is that we serve a God who has reached out to us, who has made himself known to us. God is not a mystery to us. Are there things about God that are mysterious to us? Yes, absolutely. But God has shown himself to us, and it has always been so. He has always desired it to be so. It has always been God's desire to have fellowship with man. Now, we can go back to God walking with Adam in the garden and know this to be true. We can talk about Abram and, 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 and God sitting with Abram face to face. We can talk, as we did last week, about the beautiful picture of Hagar, who is a nobody, right? I mean, she, she doesn't again factor into God's plan. She was never a part of God's plan. And yet the angel of the Lord appears unto her. This handmaid, this Egyptian, this handmaid of Sarah, in her time of most vulnerability, and reaches out to her as well. And we say, what a God of grace. What a God who reaches out to man. But in our day-to-day -day lives, we can forget sometimes. Can we not? That what, what we read ha that happened from time to time in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord appearing, appearing to Abraham, appearing to Hagar, appearing to Sarai, appearing to Manoah, Appearing to Mrs. Manoah. Don't think they give her name. Appearing to Gideon. And now our Savior has come in the flesh. And he has died on the cross. And he has ascended into heaven. And yes, we don't walk with our Savior in this flesh. A few men got to do that for a few years, a few thousand years ago. But Jesus said, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go away, I will send unto you another comforter. He will teach you all things. The spirit of Christ that is in us. So that we, in consistency with what we see in the Old Testament of the character and the nature of the God that we serve, can walk moment by moment in personal communion with our God and our Lord 
through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So that as we see these unique manifestations of the, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, we are reminded of what we have moment by moment, day by day. The angel of the Lord appeared to men in order that they might know him, might know his will, that he might prove himself, and that he might commission them to do his work, that they might know the power by which they will be asked to serve him. And as we look back on these interactions, we are reminded of the time in which we live, a time where God has given us completed revelation through the Bible that we hold in our hands, a time where God has given us of his spirit to both understand his word and to know him. A time where the one who appeared as the angel of the Lord has now sent his spirit into our hearts by which we cry, Abba, Father. Think of that. That the God who struck so much fear into the hearts of men such as Gideon and Manoah that they feared for their lives upon learning of his identity is the same God that we now call Father. Because our Savior, Jesus Christ, has broken down the enmity between God and man, that middle wall of partition. He has taken that fear and he has replaced it only with his love. All the enmity, all the fear. God is not far, he is near. God is holy, but I have been drawn near through the righteousness of Christ. God is high and lifted up. But he sent his son to condescend to men of low estate. There is no reason to assume that it is anything but intentional that the angel of the Lord is physically introduced to us not through a great man like Enoch or of Noah. We, we, we would believe that the angel of the Lord was that which interacted with them. We have heard the Lord speak to Abram, and, and we, we would assume that that was the angel of the Lord as well. But where is it that we are introduced to the angel of the Lord? We are introduced to the angel of the Lord by name when he is interacting with this nobody. <laughs> A reminder that God does not just see the great and the powerful and the mighty and the noble. He sees all. And among the many lessons which the Old Testament compels us to contemplate, one thing we can always carry away is the joy of what we have in this time through Christ who has finished his work that we might be reconciled to God in full. It is that reason why we have erected a holiday around his coming. Why have we done such a thing? We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a couple of weeks. Is it appropriate for us to, uh, uh, to observe this holiday? We'll talk about that. I think uh, I haven't. I don't think I've talked about that corporately since 2018. So it's probably time to bubble it up again. But the fact of the matter is, the reason why we do so is because the impact of what happened through Jesus Christ is beyond measure, and we ought to regard that impact in the breaking down of those barriers, those partitions, that separation between God and man into personal fellowship once again. And it's times like this where we read about this angel of the Lord coming and going that we are reminded of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so may that set our hearts aright as we step into this season, remembering that one of those names that was given prophetically to our Savior is Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. 
Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.